Please take out a piece of paper. You can use your notes. Number it one to ten. You need tens? They're right here. It's pop quiz time. Oh. oh. I threatened this. I have to carry through with my threat. We have? We do pop quiz before? Well, it's time for another one. Quizzes are great. It's time for me to relax and for you to sweat. Now remember, this is just for fun. Okay? All right, question number one. These are all short answers. Blank interpretation treats the text of Scripture like a code where everything in the text has a hidden spiritual meaning. Is that allegorical interpretation or rationalistic interpretation? One of those two. You can do it by elimination. You can also talk to your neighbor, but if you do so, do so quietly. Okay. Second question. The first step in sound Bible study is observation or application. Pick one. Just write it down. Number three. True or false. The presence of figurative language in a portion of the Bible means that that portion should not be interpreted literally. The presence of figurative language in a portion of the Bible means that that portion should not be interpreted literally. Question number four. Perhaps the single most important factor to take into consideration when interpreting any portion of the Bible is... When it was written or context. True or false. The doctrine of inspiration, as we understand it, states that the human writers of scripture are remarkably gifted religious thinkers whose wisdom has never been equaled. Can you see okay, Lori? I'm always in the, in the way. Okay, number six, true or false, we can always find the meaning of a word by looking at the root word from which it is derived, like dunamis and dynamite. Okay, true or false, a given word in the Bible may mean more than one thing, in different contexts. True or false? A given word in the Bible may mean more than one thing in different contexts. Number eight. Narrative, legal, satire, poetry, wisdom literature, prophecy, and direct discourse are all examples of biblical what? Genre? or culture. Number nine, interpretation that insists that the meaning of a passage is what some authoritative body says that meaning is, is called A, rationalistic or traditional interpretation. Let me read it to you again. 
interpretation that insists that the meaning of a given passage is what some authoritative body says the meaning is, is called rationalistic or traditional interpretation. Number 10, true or false. The order of words in a good modern literal translation always reflects exactly the order of words in the Greek or Hebrew manuscripts. Sue, don't look at me that way. <laughs> All right. Number one. What kind of interpretation treats this text of Scripture like a code? Shout it out. Allegorical. Allegorical. Good. Remember rationalistic? The key word there, the root word, is rational or reason. Rationalistic interpretation says that whatever fits with my mind must be true. And since my mind says miracles can't happen, then when the Bible says there were miracles, they didn't happen. Okay. The first step in sound Bible study is observation. What is application? The last step. Good. Okay. True or false, the presence of figurative language in a portion of the Bible means that that portion should not be interpreted literally. It's false, right? There's figurative language all through Scripture. Figurative language has a literal meaning in the sense that it conveys, conveys something clear and understandable. Okay. What's the single most important factor to take into consideration when interpreting any portion of the Bible? Context. Yay. Okay. Number five. What's the answer? It's false. They were not just remarkably gifted religious thinkers, were they? They were people who were guided by the Spirit of God. Okay. True or false? We can always find the meaning of a word by looking at the root word from which it is derived. That's false. The root fallacy, yes. Okay. True or false? A given word in the Bible may mean more than one thing in different contexts. True. True. Good. We're going to see that tonight in one of our explorations. All right. These are all examples of what? Genre. Genre is a kind of literature, right? Okay. Number 10. Interpretation that insists the meaning of a given passage is what some authoritative body says the meaning is, like the Roman Catholic Church, is called what kind of interpretation? Traditional. It's traditional. Okay? It's, it's based on the tradition of that body. Now, rationalistic interpretation is interpretation that insists that anything that my mind thinks can't be true isn't true. Okay? So, rationalistic interpreters went to the Gospels and they went through and they cut out all the miracles. Didn't Thomas Jefferson do that? Yes. Okay? That was rationalistic interpretation. Now, some traditional interpretation might be rationalistic, but they are not the same. Okay, finally, the order of words in a good modern literal translation always reflects exactly the order of words in the Greek or Hebrew manuscripts. 
obviously false, okay? There is no one-to-one -one mapping from one language to another. Okay, now, we're going to have some fun. Open your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. We have not done this in here, right? Okay. Philippians chapter 2. Okay, now don't look at your text just yet. Look up here. Philippians chapter 2.12 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not, on, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Does this passage teach that you have to figure out how to get saved or that you have to work for your salvation? What do you think? I've heard some no's. Any yeses? Okay, at first glance, it kind of looks like it does. Why do those of you who say no, say no? Okay? Read it to us. Read it to us. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his pleasure. Okay. What just happened? Okay. At the beginning, we weren't using context. Now we have used context. Now, I still want an explanation. What does it mean to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Okay. Tommy says, walk in obedience. Okay. What was that? Okay, okay. All right, that's a good point. The fear here is not necessarily fear of hellfire, is it? It's a respect for God. Okay? Tommy, you said... Okay, obedience. Well, how do you get that out of work out your own salvation? Okay. Okay. So what you're doing is you're putting these two together, right? Yeah. Now I'm. There's also as you have always obeyed, not as not as in my presence only. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. Catch that. He's saying in the past you have done something, and now he's saying continue to do it even though I'm not around. All right. So that suggests that. Whatever work out your own salvation with fear and trembling means, it's closely linked or perhaps equivalent to obeying as they had been obeying. Would the more indicate the need look before this passage for further clarification? This one. Yes. Yes. Okay, let's do that. Go back in the book of Philippians and see if you can find any evidence in the book for the idea that this is a call to live in obedience as you have been living and somebody said because God is the one who's at work in you. Can you see that theme elsewhere in the book? Okay, read that to us. Being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Okay. 
Now in 1.6, we've got the idea of God working in you, right? That sounds very much like 2.12, doesn't it? 2.12 and 2.13. Let's go back to this again, okay? Why does Paul say, work out your own salvation? Why doesn't he just say, live obediently? Okay, I like that. All right, we've got a continuation. Now, where did it start? It started with what? Okay, it started with... When, now, when you say salvation, what do you mean? Okay, it started with Christ. It started with... Okay, believing. Good. Okay. It started with believing... Now, on the day you believed, what happened? You were saved. You were born again. You were regenerated, right? You stopped being spiritually dead. Now, Belin says there's a continuation here. How do you continue from that? I mean, being born again is an event, isn't it? It happens at a moment in time. Before that event, you're spiritually dead, according to Ephesians chapter 2. After that event, you're spiritually alive. But do you just get born again and then... Okay, okay. The process that follows is sanctification, isn't it? Now, is sanctification something that ever stops? Well, okay, when does it stop? Okay, alright, that's very theological, you're right. There are places in scripture that say, you were sanctified, and they're talking about an absolute thing, right? You were sanctified by God... You could say you were sanctified by God before you were even born. You could say you were sanctified by God at the moment you were saved because you were set apart to be His. Okay? That is a sense of the word sanctification. What we're really talking about here is what theologians call progressive sanctification. Now, when does this end? Okay, it ends at death. Yeah, or the rapture. It ends at glorification or death. Um... But in between that, until you get here, what are we supposed to be doing? Uh, you guys have to talk louder. Don't be shy. Glory, what did you say? I just referred to the passage, working out our salvation. Okay, all right. What is the word in the Greek used for salvation? It's, it's, it's soteria, I believe. It's, it's the same word we use uh, for salvation in other contexts, but what you're getting at is what I'm trying to get at here. Okay? When he says work out your salvation, 
He's not talking about this, is he? He's talking about the whole package, isn't he? Okay? Because according to 1.6, when you get <laughs> saved, a process begins that continues all through your life. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Now that process is what we call progressive sanctification. It's what Romans 8.29 calls being conformed to the image of Christ. Okay? So, you could, I really think what Paul is saying is that, that this process is working out your salvation. In referring to that as in the image of Christ, that's reinforced by the verses immediately before Very good. the passage. Very good. Look at what comes right before this passage. What comes right before the passage that we're looking at? It's a passage that we we read all the time in our worship service, isn't it? It's the passage about Christ humbling himself and taking the lowly position of a servant, going to the cross. And how does that passage begin in verse 5? Let, let this mind be in you. Okay, He's saying, imitate Christ. Now back up a little further. Go to the beginning of the chapter. Look at verses 2 through 4. What's he saying? He's describing working it out. And notice how the main theme there is in verse 4. Let each of you look at not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Then he gives the example of Christ, who is the supreme example of that. And then he says, therefore, continue to do it. Okay? Now, what this all comes down to, really, is the idea that the way Paul is using it here, your salvation is not just getting saved. It's not just crossing a line from someone who's destined to go to hell to being someone who's destined to go to heaven. Your salvation includes all the things that God is doing to take you and make you like Christ. And it's a call to cooperate with him in that process, isn't it? Now, does that surprise you to see the word salvation being used that way? Don't we tend to think of the word salvation in the Bible as a technical word that means what happens to you on the day that you believe? Okay? But, but, but it's not always used that way. Being given a new book and say, now you have to read it. In other words, you've been saved. Okay. Well, okay. I, I would agree with that. No, no. I know you're not. Yeah, he's, it, it's a call to a new kind of life that you didn't know before. But that new life is described 
by the term salvation. And he says, work it out. And he says, God is at work in you both to will and to do. He's describing a process. He's not just describing an event. So, I'm not disagreeing with you, Gary. What's so interesting here is that this term, which we think of as meaning like the moment of regeneration or the moment of justification, whatever you want to call it, salvation isn't just getting saved, is it? Because God is delivering you from something. You know, what's the real, the real meaning of the word salvation in the Bible is basically deliverance. Okay? It means getting rescued from some danger. Now, at the moment that you get justified, what danger do you get rescued from? Okay, the penalty of sin. Hell. But in the process of growing to be like Jesus, there's another danger that you get rescued from. The power of sin. Okay, the power of sin. Okay? We got the penalty of sin. This is very theological. Penalty of sin. This is what are we going to call it? Justification? Eternal. Okay, yeah. Eternal. This is an eternal issue. And then the power of sin. And this is sanctification. Okay? Now, there are other ways you could talk about this, okay? Um, Second Peter talks about it as the danger of being fruitless and barren. Turn to Second Peter chapter 1. Some of you know this is one of my very favorite passages. Second Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 5. Paul says, For this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Now, your faith is the foundation. He says, add virtue to virtue, knowledge to knowledge, self-control to self-control, perseverance to perseverance, godliness to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and they abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually possible to be barren and unfruitful as a believer. It's very sad. And if you live that way, you're cheating yourself and you're cheating God and you're cheating the people around you. Because the salvation that is yours in Christ is not merely the rescue from the destination of hell, is it? It's really intended to be a rescue from being a useless person. God, God intends to take each of us and to begin transforming us to be like Jesus. It says in Ephesians 2.10 that he saved us that we might walk in good deeds, which he prepared beforehand for us. So, Paul is using salvation in a rather broad sense here. Okay? Now, let's go on. Is the phrase, a walking, walking in Christ, or have a walk of Christ, Absolutely. Absolutely. Bear the fruits of the Spirit. Walk in love. Um, walk in the Spirit. All of those things. The, the, the metaphor of walking is talking about 
living out the process. It's an active. Yeah, it's an active thing. And, you know, he, he says, work out your salvation. He's telling you, do it. But he says, God who's, is the one who's at work in you to make it happen. So, we need to participate. We need to take initiative. We need to make effort. But we always have to recognize that none of those things will take effect unless God is providing the power and the guidance. And that's what he does. And it's kind of a mysterious process, but it works. You know? It does work. Okay. We've seen that Philippians 2.13 speaks of the believer expressing outwardly in his, in his life the inner transformation that God's working in him. Now turn now to Matthew chapter 25. Turn to Matthew 25 and read verses 31 to the end of the chapter. Read them quickly. Don't dwell on them too long because our, our time is short. But I think you're familiar with them. reading, what I want you to do is compare what Jesus says to the goats and what he says to the sheep. And then think about these questions. Just look up when you're done reading. Okay? That way I'll know. First question, on what basis does Jesus declare one group of people to be saved and the other group to be damned? It's their deeds, isn't it? Okay? You're being honest. That's good. Okay. How do you reconcile this? with the teaching of Philippians, of the passage in Philippians that we just looked at? Or how do you reconcile it with Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 that says you're saved by grace, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast? How do you reconcile those? Well, I think that's what you read, what you read first uh, really was talking about an attitude, not about fruits or deeds. Okay, you mean in Philippians? In Philippians. Okay. About love and about um, also um, working out our salvation in fear. Well, it's, it's, it's more of a... But is it just an attitude? Remember at the beginning of the chapter he said, treat others better than yourselves, look out for them. That's not just an attitude, is it? No, it's not an attitude, but it does have to come. 
there is an attitude. A attitude is very foundational. Good. Okay, there is. There is. Okay? Keep going. I want you guys to think, think this through. Okay. And his sheep will do these things. His sheep will, and I think this, con this context is talking about um, helping believers like that. Okay. And so the sheep will help the other sheep. Okay, so he's saying that true believers actually will do act. Andrew. Well, kind of what I see looking at it is that you know, at this judgment, he's already separated the sheep from the goats, and they're on his right and his left. God who's making this distinction here. So I think what he, he's not, you know, what we first say seeing it is he's deciding it by works, works and salvation, and that would you know, make a red light pop up in our head. Okay. But I think what it really is is that he's saying that this represents what I was looking for and what your fruit from salvation was, etc. Okay. And this is why you're saved and why you're damned. And that's why, that's him saying he's already done the separation, and he's saying this is a representation of why you go and this is why you don't, but that it's not actual salvation. Okay. Could I give you another word? Evidence? But what about all the non-believers who do all kinds of good works? Okay. All right. That's a great question. Hold, hold that until we answer this, and then we'll go to that, okay? And don't let me forget. All right? Well, the person who doesn't put trust in Jesus for his salvation... Mm -hmm. Is going to want to be um, judged on his works. He thinks he's good enough. Well, that's probably so, that's probably so true. While you're saved by faith, you're condemned for your deeds. Well, that's 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 certainly true. Okay. Well, how about Paul says uh, all all our righteousness is in filthy rags. Okay. Well, that's 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 the answer. You have to remind me of your name. I always forget your name. Becca. Becca. My wife reminds me every week, and I always forget it. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, I know. I know who you. I knew you belonged about. Um, you're not sitting together tonight. Um, but, but Bruce, say that again. Our righteousnesses are. As unbelievers, all our good deeds are worthless as far as achieving salvation. Okay. In fact, in fact, they're not. They're not only worthless as far as achieving salvation. They're worthless as far as glorifying God. Right. And that would be John 15. Okay. I think what's Gary, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that it's interesting. Both groups asking the same question. You know, when did we see you thirsty? That's fascinating, isn't it? And then he has two distinctly different answers for him. Mm -hmm. Well, the ones he considers to be the sheep are surprised that he attributes their good deeds as having been done to him. And the ones he considers to be the goats are surprised that he says, well, you didn't do it to me because you didn't do it to them. Um, and in one case, I think it's humility. And in the other case, it's looking for an excuse. But what, what are we doing when we try to reconcile this passage with these other passages? Okay, This passage on the surface seems to teach salvation by works. Every person in this room is uncomfortable with this idea. And I'm glad you are. You're uncomfortable with it because you believe that Scripture is unified and that it all comes from the mind of the same God 
And therefore, what this passage says and what that other passage says cannot be contradictory. And you've thrown out a lot of the elements necessary to reconcile them. Okay? And, and I think it really comes down to that in, in uh, Matthew 25, we're looking at the evidence of the transformation. And Jesus is saying, the lack of evidence of the transformation in your cases indicates that the transformation never took place. He's not saying you're saved by works. He's saying the absolute lack of evidence indicates that you were never saved by faith. Andrew. Unlike I was saying earlier, I think that one of the things we have to look at is that, of course, God is in control here, and he makes the decision, and he separated the sheep from the goats. So even though what we see at first might be something that makes us think, oh, it's salvation by works, which we know isn't true, which would contradict everything we believe, Mm -hmm. he's the one who made the distinction, and he already made it, and there's no question there anyway. So... I think that's evidence to say, you know, it might look contrary at first, but this is simply evidence because he's made the distinction and it's his decision anyway. Okay. Okay. Bob. Okay, well, that, that's a great point. If we were to explore Matthew 24 and 25, what we would see is that Jesus is making prophecy that will ap- apply particularly to the generation of people who will be on the earth in the period immediately preceding his second coming. They will have unique evidence of the soon return of Christ that's unlike anything that anybody else has ever experienced in history. And he makes a direct appeal and he says to them, don't be like the useless servant. Be at work serving Christ. And then he gets to the end and he says, if you happen to be at the end and you haven't been serving Christ, that's going to be evidence that you didn't take either the call to faith or the call to fruitfulness seriously. So there... There is a bigger context that we could deal with, and that would really be the best way to approach this. But what, what do you call what we've just been doing in our attempts to reconcile these passages? It's the analogy of Scripture. We keep talking about this, right? Okay. Now, I'm going to skip over this because we're short on time. Um, you might want to write these passages down. If you look at Acts 4.12... 2 Corinthians 1, 6, and Romans 13, 1. Acts 4, 12, 2 Corinthians 1, 6, and Romans 13, 1. Those are all passages where the word salvation is used. And if you study how that word is used in those passages, you'll find that each one of them uses it somewhat differently. And this is just kind of a follow-up to what we did in Philippians chapter 2. But we're going to skip over that and try some other fun stuff. Okay? I'm going to put up a figure of speech and I want someone to volunteer to say in plain language without the use of figures what it means. This one's easy. All men are like grass. What does it mean? 
Everybody dies. Love it. Okay. He couldn't pour water out of a boot with the instructions written on the heel. What does that mean? He's stupid. He's stupid. Good. All right. Second Timothy four six. Somebody look that up. Read it out loud. Okay, what does that mean? Yeah, I'm going to die soon, right? Okay, if you squeeze me any tighter, I'll be standing behind you. <laughs> what does that mean? You're hugging me so hard it hurts. Okay, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. What does that mean? Okay, don't let them understand. That's basically what it means, doesn't it? Harden them in their envelope. Okay, but you can't use the word harden. That's a figure. Okay? It's hard to speak without figures, isn't it? We do it so naturally. Okay? It really does mean make them unable to understand. Okay? Make them spiritually unresponsive. Okay. Your actions are speaking so loudly I can't hear a word you are saying. That's a figure. You can't use that. Somebody give it to me. A nice, clear statement. What's it mean? Hypocrite. You are a hypocrite. Isn't that what it means? Okay. It was so hot the chickens were laying hard-boiled eggs. What's that mean? It's really hot. It's really hot. <laughs> Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. What does that mean? I choose Jacob. I choose Jacob? Yes. You could probably be more specific than that. I choose Jacob for... <coughs> In my sovereignty, I have the right to choose. How about I poured out my special love, or I've given, I've loved Jacob more than Esau. How about I've blessed Jacob more than Esau? Okay. How about this one? I love this one. He fell for that like an egg from a tall chicken. What does that mean? Okay, he's gullible. Perfect. Perfect. All right. A Christian author claims that a feeling of inner peace is a means of discovering God's will for specific decisions. He cites Colossians 3.15 as proof. Do you agree or disagree with his claim and why? Better look it up. of conflict in the church. It doesn't say anything about peace when you find something. It just says, let peace be in your heart. Let but they would say, let peace rule. 
So if I have peace that's telling me what I should do, it's ruling me. Is that, is that, is that a fair application of that verse? Do you think? What about the word heart? Do you notice something on the end of it? It's plural. I mean, that supports what Hampton was saying, right? This, is, this isn't an individual command, is it? It's a group command. Okay? Do you think the guy is right? I don't think he's right. Certainly not on the basis of that verse. Okay, how about this? As you share the gospel with a Jew, he cites Micah 6.8 to prove that salvation is not by grace, but by obeying the law. He's not willing to accept the authority of the New Testament verses that you cite to prove that salvation is by grace. How would you respond? Go ahead, look up Micah 6.8. Somebody read it out. He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Okay. Your Jewish friend says that Micah 6.8 tells you that salvation is by works. You say, no, it isn't. It's by grace through faith. And you cite a whole bunch of New Testament verses. He says, I don't believe in the New Testament. So what do you do? Okay, go to the Old Testament. Where are you going to go? Okay, somebody said it. Okay, what about Abraham? Okay, Genesis 15.6. <coughs> go to Genesis 15.6, right? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as, as righteousness. Okay? How so? Okay. They responded to his call in faith, didn't they? What's a little tricky there, though, is it's tricky to argue whether they were really saved or whether God just relented from the calamity he was going to send. But you're building something, okay? I think Genesis 15.6 would be the primary place to go. Okay, very, very fundamental. And by the way, that's where Paul went, right? Okay. A believer lost his job in the recent economic crisis on the basis of Romans 8.28. You all know what that says. He turns down opportunities for other jobs that pay less than his old one because he believes that this verse means that God took his earlier job away so that he could get one that pays even more. What do you think about his interpretation? I've heard people do this. There you go. <laughs> I like that one. But what do you think about his interpretation of Romans 8.28? He thinks that good means Okay, what's Romans 8.28 say? We know that all things work together for good 
to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So why is he wrong? Is it, is it good for him to lose a job that pays $60,000 a year and get another one that pays forty? That doesn't sound good to me. Okay. Okay, that's a great question. Go further. Okay. All right. Now, where from Romans 8.28 can you find out what kind of good God is talking about? Okay? All right, it's in 8.29. Lori says he wants to conform us to his likeness. That's the good, isn't it? That's the value you're talking about. The thing that's of value is being conformed to Christ, not necessarily making more money. Okay. On the basis of Romans 9.13, that's Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, a preacher analyzed the two brothers in Genesis to see what personality characteristics made God hate one and love the other. He concludes that we should strive to be like Jacob so that God will love us. Is this a valid procedure? I've seen all these things done. Is this valid? Okay, he loved them. That's a good point. He loved them. He loved one of them before they were even born. Okay. Yeah, Jacob wasn't that great a guy, was he? At least not in the early part of his life. So what's invalid about this? Why, why, why is what this guy is doing wrong? The chapter describes, uh, of God. Okay, so 9.13 really isn't about personality types that God prefers, is it? It's a statement of God's sovereign action in choosing to bless one more than the other totally apart from what? Totally apart from anything they had done or their personalities or their value as people. Okay. Not to describe to be like another man, per se. True. Who's the model we should all be striving for? It's Christ. Okay. Now turn to Proverbs 17.17. I heard a guy do a whole message on this in the Philippines and it absolutely drove me nuts. 1717. <laughs> Let me read this to you. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. On the basis of this text, the preacher argues that friends help us in hard times but relatives cause trouble. <laughs> Is this valid? Okay, okay. A brother is born to help you. Okay. Well, a brother could also be a friend. Now, what what you are what you are both saying is that there's not necessarily a contrast here, is there? No, it's parallel. Yeah. Just have a yeah. translation. Bob. Okay. What, what do you know 
if you've read the Proverbs a lot or if you've read Hebrew poetry a lot. That it often does what? It often repeats itself. Okay? It'll often say the same thing twice. Now, I think that's what's being said here. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Okay? Well, the friend who loves you at all times, it's not great to have a friend who loves you when you win the lottery, right? It's great to have a friend who loves you when your wife leaves you or your kid gets hit by a truck or you lose your job. That's when it's great to have a friend. Or you need a kidney. Or you need a kidney, yeah. Okay. Um, and a brother is born for adversity. If you look at it that way, you can see that this is not a contrast, is it? The first verse is talking about the value of a friend in adversity, and the second verse is talking about the value of a brother in adversity. It's not a contrast. Okay? All right. Well, that's all I've got. Let's, uh, let's pray and call it quits, and if you will, please try to read through those notes by next week. We have two sessions left in this pair of courses and then we'll start the next one. Andrew? Uh, I passed around the attendance sheet. Okay. Has everybody signed it? No. Okay. If you haven't, please try to do it on the way out. But let's pray first, okay? Father, thank you for giving us this time together. Thank you for what you are doing to expose us to your word more and for the way that you're helping us to sharpen each other. Pray that you would make us not only more careful in the handling of your word, but more eager to obey it, to put it into action in our lives, that we may truly be fruitful in your service, that we may work out our salvation with fear and trembling in a way that glorifies you as you work in us. Please dismiss us with your blessing and protect us as we go home. We pray this through your Son. Amen.